The Interchange is brought to you by Viking Cold Solutions. Long-duration energy storage, plus efficiency, plus resiliency, yes, yes, and yes. With Viking Cold's thermal storage systems, you can store and discharge up to 1 megawatt for up to 13 hours per day per facility, plus improve efficiency an average of 25%. Storing cold inside critical food supply infrastructure also provides three times longer resiliency during planned or unplanned power outages. See more benefits for the grid, food industry, and environment at vikingcold.com grid. The interchange is also brought to you by NextTracker, the world's leading solar tracking solutions company. NextTracker works with its customers to advance the connected power plant of the future with smart trackers, energy storage systems, and the True Capture advanced control software. NextTracker has more than 30 gigawatts of resilient and intelligent systems installed, delivered, and under fulfillment in hundreds of projects across six continents. Find out more at nexttracker.com. That's nextracker.com. This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey, a contributing editor at GTM in my basement studio in Boston. Welcome. This week, what does electricity use look like in a time of pandemic? We're in the middle of a sudden, jarring economic shift. Storefronts, arenas, and office buildings are dark in many cities. Homes are becoming the center of our activity, and for many of us, our work. That's causing sudden shifts in the way we consume energy. We've seen it play out in China, France, and Italy, and now in the U.S. So what's happening to the daily shape of electricity load here in America? And what are the long-term consequences to power providers if this goes on for a long time? With me from Berkeley, California, with a shelter-in-place order, is my co-host Shale Khan. Shale's managing director at the venture capital firm Energy Impact Partners. How are you doing over there? Um, I'm fine. Totally fine. And uh, I feel very fortunate to have a place that I can shelter in place comfortably and and reasonably happily. So nothing to complain about over here um, other than being slightly cooped up. How about yourself? Uh, You know, I'm doing okay. I I have a microphone with which I can connect to people all over the country. So these conversations keep me sane. And like you, uh, I have you know, things to complain about, but I will not complain about them because there are people in really bad situations and my heart goes out to them. So we're staying healthy over here. Do you get on Zoom calls with your microphone and impress everybody with your fancy equipment? <laughs> I haven't. I've been, I've just learned about the Zoom background thing that everybody is doing now. And uh, that's been my, that's been my toy for the past day. One thing I've noticed, by the way, uh, is all of my in-person meetings have switched over to Zoom, but also most of my phone calls have somehow switched over to Zoom. It's like we've decided we're all on video chat for everything now, and so it's really killing my like multitasking productivity. <laughs> well, we're joined by Nick Chassett, who is the Chief Executive Officer of East Bay Community Energy, and he's also on the board of the California Community Choice Association. Nick is a friend of the show. Uh, He's worked as chief of staff to the head of the California Public Utilities Commission. He was a special advisor to Governor Jerry Brown on distributed energy resources. And he's here to talk to us about what's going on in California with electricity load right now as everyone gets on their Zoom calls and works from home. And then also what that means for electricity use around the country and around the world. Nick, how are you? I'm doing as well as can be expected uh, in these uh, kind of difficult and uncertain times, but um, I'm sheltering in place in San Francisco and uh, I'm here with my wife and two kids and we are hanging in there. 
Good. Well, normally we'd have a producer over there with a microphone in front of you, but we can no longer do that. So we've got you here on your your Apple headphones, and we're happy that you're here with us for the next 45 minutes or so. So, Shale, let's just talk big picture here. What have we seen so far in other countries that are further along in their epidemic response when it comes to electricity loads? Yeah, so it's really interesting. I mean, it's obviously early days, right? We don't we don't know what the impact um, in the long term on electricity demand is going to be. And obviously that's tied up in how long this response effort takes and what the ultimate economic impacts are and so on. But we, we do have some early data from other countries um, and other locations within the U.S. that I think is sort of interesting. China is obviously the first place where the pandemic hit significantly. And um, it was earlier. So power generation in the first two months of this year, January and February of this year, was down a little over 8% compared to the same period last year in all of China. Now, I don't have the numbers specifically for like Wuhan, um, but I would suspect it's significantly more than that in those regions. But that's China. Um you know, in Japan, actually, we've seen very little impact on electricity demand overall. And I think that's a reflection of the fact that the impact seems to be driven in part by what the response to COVID-19 is, which is in Japan, they haven't really had no nationwide quarantine. You know, they've focused more on um, a ton of testing similar to what South Korea has done and um, social distancing and stuff like that. So the result has been not a big impact on electricity demand. Italy is obviously the one that is probably most stark right now because they're on this nationwide quarantine. Um, and there the data is a little stronger, though it's hard to tell how long it's going to last. So just over uh, the past month, we've seen this like massive contraction in electricity demand in northern Italy. This is from the Wall Street Journal. Russell Gold did a good piece on this earlier this week. Um, on Monday this week, electricity demand in northern Italy was down about 18% from the day before Italy began to implement its quarantine on a weather normalized basis, which we should come back to. Um, so, you know, I think generally what we're seeing is that the places that issue quarantines of one kind or another see some kind of meaningful decline in electricity demand overall. And has anything caught you by surprise as you went through those numbers? You mentioned Japan is a little bit different than other countries. Did anything else jump out at you as unexpected? Or does it seem like, yep, that's what happens when you shut down entire cities? I think if you don't know a ton about electricity, we should talk about this in the context of California and the data that Nick is seeing. Um, you know, you'd imagine that there's this like trade-off, which is we, you know, a bunch of commercial buildings shut down and retailers and stuff like that, and a bunch of maybe some industrial facilities shut down. But in exchange for that, we're all sitting at home and presumably using more stuff in our homes. And so you'd think that there's some balance there. And you, I don't think you would know on the on the outside necessarily whether that would mean an overall decline, but it obviously does, at least in, in those countries. Okay, so that's the brief picture of the rest of the world. Now let's turn to what's happening there in California. Right. So Nick, maybe we can have you start by just uh, telling us a little bit about your territory. Tell, tell us what East Bay Community Energy is for people who don't know, and then tell us a bit about the customer classes that you've got. Hey, thanks, Shale. Yeah, EBC serves Alameda County um, from Berkeley to Fremont and out to the Altamont Pass, right where you drop into the Central Valley and the um, Five Highway. How, what's like a typical peak load for your region? Yeah, we typically average around 
1,200 megawatts peak on an annual basis, and we have roughly uh, six terawatt hours of load. We serve 550,000 accounts, and that's about one and a half million people. All right. So like a reasonably sized small utility, which you're not exactly your community choice aggregator, but just for scaling for our listeners. Um, all right. So let's talk about what you're seeing in terms of load in your territory. The data that you've got now is basically what was happening as this pandemic was spreading, but before, and while everybody was starting to stay at home, I mean, it was already true before the shelter in place order um, was placed here that like a lot of stuff was shut down. A lot of people were already working from home, but before the full shelter in place order that forced everybody home and forced shutting pretty much everything other than um, restaurants for takeout, hospitals, pharmacies, et cetera. So what's the high level result? Um, What did you see in terms of load in the first couple months of the year? Since February 26th, when we had our first community uh, transmission of COVID, we've seen a 9% reduction over the last two weeks in demand overall, much of which is actually coming from residential customers, which was actually something that we would not have expected. My, My intuition going into the analysis was that we would see reduction in commercial, particularly small commercial usage as people are working from home and businesses are closing. And an increase in residential usage as people are you know, at home in the middle of the day, but you know the most significant reductions were were from the residential customer class. Yeah, that's super counterintuitive. Um, so we should dig into that a little bit, right? Because your assumption would be that what was happening even before shelter in place. So this is is you know post community transmission before shelter in place. The assumption would have been a lot of people started working from home and shut down some commercial offices and whatever else. And so commercial load you'd think would go down and residential load would go up, but you're saying you've seen the opposite. That's right. That's right. And, you know, granted it's still only a two week period, but yeah, we, we, we've seen the opposite, which uh, we're, we're still trying to better understand why that would be the case. Are people not working from home? Are they leaving or, or, or something else? Yeah, that, I was trying to think through like what are the possibilities here? And the only one that I can really come up with that would explain it is, is people actually leaving their homes um, or even leaving the whole region, right? Which, I mean, anecdotally amongst the uh, middle and upper middle class people that I know best, like a few have done that for sure. But if enough for that to be a 9% reduction in overall load is really surprising. I wonder if there's some external data that anybody could find on how many people have actually left their homes and, uh, and you know, gone to somewhere less crowded. I, you know, I, the, the, I sort of the other anecdotal explanation is that, you know, as people are going home and staying home, there's a sense that they should be conserving. There's sort of the sense that, hey, you know, there may be disruptions and so I'm going to conserve. Now, you know, let me just be clear, no disruptions on the horizon from our perspective, but that that may be one of the drivers of a kind of conservation behavior. But again, you know, we're we're, we're still trying to parse through things. And then of course, it, it may be all changed on Monday when the shelter in place order went into effect, right? Because that then it really sent, presumably sent a lot more people home, closed a lot more businesses. You have to assume that moving forward, the load reduction will be, at least relatively speaking, more on the commercial side than the data that you're seeing. I, I think that's right. You know, I think roughly 10% of our load is attributable to you know, local government 
So that's can be schools, city and county buildings, etc. And, you know, we would expect, you know, all of our school load to drop close to zero, given that schools are, are going to be largely shuttered. Some, some do remain open for food distribution. But again, you know, you're, we're not going to see all the lighting load. Similarly, for office buildings, anecdotally, we're hearing a lot of office buildings are going into what they call weekend mode, where you, know, you can turn on the lights, but they don't automatically stay on. So, you know, those are certainly factors that we're looking into as well. I guess I want to understand, let's just say that this continues, you know, and that there's an overall reduction in load of 8%, 10%, who knows what the number is for some extended period of time. I mean, that's a, it's a lot, right? I mean, it doesn't sound like a lot when you just say the number, but just for some historical basis in the recession, the last recession in 2008, I think the um, load sh- that was shed as a result of res- the the recession ultimately at its max was like 5%, something like that. Now that lasted potentially longer. We'll see what happens with the recession here. But, um, you know, how big a deal for you is like a 10% reduction in demand? And how big a deal is it for the utility and for the generators? I, you know, I think it's potentially a very, you know, very significant impact, you know, starting with us who you know, are customer facing all the way upstream typically a CCA like ours, we go and, you know, hedge ourselves, you know, 70, 80, 90% for the next year. And then, you know, you have less level of hedging beyond that. So, you know, a 10% reduction, you know, that probably is within the the margin of what we have market exposure for. So, if we lost that load, we would just reduce our market purchases. But I think one of the biggest challenges we're facing right now is predicting how much change is going to happen and how quickly. This is happening very, very fast. I think even in the financial crisis of 2007, 2008, it was happening over the course of months. This seems to be happening over the course of days. So, you know, potentially very disruptive. We're seeing a lot of price volatility, especially in the short term in California. Uh, We're seeing pretty significant reductions in power prices for the next six months. So, or, or really through the end of 2020, as a frame of reference, you know, your average price might be around $35, $36 a megawatt hour for what's called around the clock power. And uh, right now that product is trading more like $31, uh, which is you know, historically low. But what's kind of fascinating is that prices pick up back to sort of their historical averages for 2021. So if you're trying to buy power for 2021 and beyond, uh, we're not seeing that softness, uh, which you know, I think reflects the sentiment that while this is a very fast impact on load and you know in the underlying revenue, that you know it could pick up very quickly. Obviously, that's one of the big unknowns here, and you know makes it really hard to plan. Hmm. That's really interesting. Um, you're seeing similar, not by the way, not just in California. I was looking at um, forward prices in ERCOT in Texas. Uh, and forward prices for summer peak, which, you know, last year was a really, depending on who you are, really good or really bad year for summer peak in, in ERCOT territory where prices spiked up to the maximum, which is $9,000 a megawatt hour. Um, this year there, they have been now like the forward prices for the summer have been crashing. So it's a similar story, which I presume is playing out in most of the wholesale markets, but it's interesting that the 
the traders and the wholesale markets now are basically baking in the assumption that that pricing resumes normalcy in the beginning of 2021. So they're making some implicit bet about lost demand in the short term that recovers, which means like a V-shaped recession potentially that spikes back. But I guess I wonder whether there's something that's not being accounted for on the supply side. Because the other thing that we have happening during this whole period is we've had a supply chain disruption in China um, that has now somewhat resolved itself, as I understand it, but has become a supply chain disruption in the rest of the world. And of course, um, a complete inability to like construct new things. So presumably there's a bunch of new generation that's supposed to be coming online this year that's at least going to be delayed. And so I wonder whether that affects this, like the supply demand balance that you might see in the in these markets like six months from now, 12 months from now. You know, I think at least from what we're seeing, we have projects that are under construction and then we have projects that have you know longer dates and we're not yet seeing any specific disruptions there because of the structure of the ITC and, and the fact that there is a, the opportunity to do significant safe harboring, a lot of new solar and some degree wind, but a lot of new solar and solar and storage projects, at least in California, are actually going to start construction in 2022 and come online kind of mid to late 2022, uh, which means they're likely to start going into the capital markets to raise debt and tax equity and what have you in 2021. So, at least for our portfolio, you know, if indeed there is this V-shape and things recover in 2021, my hope would be that you know many of those projects stay on track. But timing matters a lot here too. So if you are planning a project that you're trying to go raise capital for right now, that might be that might be troubling. But at least from an ITC perspective, my understanding is that if you were to move a project from 21 to 22, that's doable. And then from an RPS perspective in California, which is the driver for a lot of these projects, um, we operate under a multi-year compliance period. So if you don't have stuff come online in 21, but it comes online in 22 or 23, you can actually kind of average over the course of that three or four year period and, uh, and, and still be in compliance with the renewable portfolio standard. Well, I guess it depends who you are in the value chain, but let's just assume that demand is depressed for some period of, for a long enough period of time that it matters um, more than expected, and that as a result, wholesale prices also are low, lower than expected. I mean, that hurts a power producer who has any merchant exposure. So if you're a uh, solar farm, wind farm, a natural gas plant, a coal plant, whatever. If you have any merchant exposure, if not all of your output is contracted at a fixed price, um, you're going to get less for it, you know, broadly speaking, in aggregate than you would expect. So it's bad for you. It's the volatility is sort of dangerous for anybody, right? So like Nick, what you were describing about being 80, 90% hedged um, and then losing 10% of your load, that's that's risky in and of itself. And then for whatever part you're unhedged and you have to purchase, like volatility makes that more challenging, presumably. Utilities, like transmission distribution utilities, right? You know, they, it, it could be a similar story to the last recession wherein they shed a bunch of load, they lose a bunch of demand for a number of years. And that puts, I think, some degree of pressure on uh, spending. Some, you know, expenditures for utilities are not, 
directly correlated with load necessarily, but certainly increasing load is a big part of the reason why they end up spending money on, on capital infrastructure, which is how they make money. So there, you know, I, I, there's probably some knock on effect there, though it's, it's maybe a little bit delayed. I mean, and then the other question is going to be what impact does this have on consumers? Um, because for example, if, if I, if it is true that the shelter in place order results in increased residential load, I mean, I can tell you anecdotally, it's almost definitely going to increase the load in my house, which means my electricity bill is going to go up. And so then I do wonder whether there is some knock on effect. Like I was going to ask you this, Nick, you know, you're in a territory, your customers in your territory are generally pretty heavy adopters and early adopters of distributed energy resources of rooftop solar of EVs of batteries. What do you think? I mean, if you're, this is obviously wild speculation, but what do you think um, the result of all of this might be on DER adoption? So I, I think we're already seeing prior to the shelter in place uh, the last number of months, we've seen a you know real growing interest in uh, solar and storage adoption across a lot of different types of customers, largely driven by sort of the, the, the concern around public safety power shutoffs. And so I, I wonder whether there's going to be continued interest in that if people are staying home and they're feeling like their home is the one safe place, wanting to make sure that they have, you know, uninterruptible uh, electricity supply. I could see that definitely being a driver of increased interest, you know, once we're kind of beyond this immediate term. On the other hand, you know, a lot of solar, rooftop solar is um, either loan financed or third party owned. And so if, you know, credit markets tighten up, you could see some challenges in the ability to actually finance those systems. So those are sort of two countervailing effects. I know on our side of things, we're going to continue forward with a program we have to try to encourage people to adopt solar and storage. So we're going to be you know, seeing data in real time over the course of the next couple of months to see you know, whether or not you know, people are more interested. You know, along those lines, though, I, I do feel like one of the things that certainly I'm concerned about is, in the short term is you know, customer ability to pay utilities across the country, Northern California certainly as well have suspended disconnection policies. So, you know, if a customer can't pay their bill, they won't be disconnected. And so, you know, that's really important that we're doing it. But you also have the effect that customer has to choose between, am I going to buy some food or am I going to pay my electric bill? If they don't have to pay their electric bill, they might not. So, you might see pretty significant reductions in revenue, pretty short term, I would expect. And, you know, then the question is, you know, how is everyone set up to deal with that? I think that... um Understanding on a you know a weather normalized and day normalized basis, the impact of uh, of all of this on load is interesting, and it has some it's some degree of an early indicator on impacts on the economy. So there's some value in that, but I think it's mostly interesting and not like the most important thing. I think the most important thing is going to be um, once we get past this first phase of many of us sheltering in place, and we can go to some degree about our daily lives again, what will the government response be? And to Nick's point, you know, there's going to be an enormous stimulus package that's going to come out in many countries. What that includes will actually have a potentially a monumental impact on the future of all these technologies that we're talking about. So that's like the real important indicator. It's just too early now because we just don't know what it's going to be like in 
all of us are sitting in our homes curious about, or I speak for myself, I'm sitting in my home curious about the impacts of coronavirus on electricity load. So Nick, a lot of people might look at this sudden demand drop and say, that's a good thing. That's fewer carbon emissions. Uh, that's less consumption. Why is that bad? Uh, why is it mixed or bad for an organization like yours? One of the challenges we face with any sort of immediate change like this is, you know, this is not something that we have necessarily been planning for specifically. I don't know if anyone has planned for a reduction in consumption of, you know, 9%, 10% or more one day to the next, which could actually be what we're seeing here. You know, I, I think that the challenge is, you know, depending on, you know, the kinds of financial arrangements you have with power suppliers, you might find yourself in a position where you have expenses that you don't have revenue to cover. Um, so that's a risk factor, certainly. You know, I, I think just more broadly, you know, what we're seeing here, the reduction in, say, emissions or consumption, these are not structural changes, right? This is not a precipitous long-term shift towards lower c- consumption of electricity or gasoline. It's a short-term effect. So, you know, we might see you know, cleaner air today or for the next weeks or months. But, you know, I think the expectation would be as we return to business as usual, you know, we're going to see the same level of electricity consumption, the same amount of pollution. And so, there's not a structural benefit. This isn't helping us achieve, you know, the goals of emissions reductions in a, a long-term way, while the effects on the economy, on credit markets, on disruption to, you know, the construction of new wind and solar projects, potentially on sort of undermining electric vehicle adoption, those are actually things that will structurally diminish our ability to reduce emissions. So, if the recovery from this recession is focused on building clean infrastructure, that's that's the opportunity. And I think that's when we think medium term about where the investments we need to be making, that's something that at least at EBCE, we're really focused on trying to advocate for. And I think we all should be doing that. Obviously, there are challenges with the willingness of this current federal government to want to do that, though. So what are you both looking for as we go forward? What is a helpful way of looking at this as we see this sudden shift that's going to last with us for some time and could fundamentally reshape electricity generation and, you know, the way that some parts of the economy are structured? Like, what what are you eyeing, Shale, that you think is helpful? I think that... Um Understanding on a you know a weather normalized and day normalized basis, the impact of uh, of all of this on load is interesting, and it has some it's some degree of an early indicator on impacts on the economy. So there's some value in that, but I think it's mostly interesting and not like the most important thing. I think the most important thing is going to be um, once we get past this first phase of many of us sheltering in place, and we can go to some degree about our daily lives again, what will the government response be? And to Nick's point, you know, there's going to be an enormous stimulus package that's going to come out in many countries. What that includes will actually have a potentially a monumental impact on the future of all these technologies that we're talking about. So that's like the real important indicator. It's just too early now because we just don't know what it's going to be like. And all of us are sitting in our homes curious about, or I speak for myself, I'm sitting in my home curious about the impacts of coronavirus on electricity load. So Nick, you're sitting there in your kitchen on your laptop with 
your wife and kids in the background just like refreshing this data uh is, is that basically like your life now I'm not refreshing it on a, on a minute by minute basis, but I am. Uh, I'm, I'm regularly checking in with uh, with our team. You know, I think one of the reasons why this is so important, especially in the the near term, is if you know we don't have a sense of these you know significant load drops, we actually might end up with a lot more exposure in the market. So that one of the things that we saw last week was really high real time energy prices. Because the day ahead forecasts were not reflecting these changes in load. And because of that, you had these imbalances and that created price spikes. And so, if say, you know, you expect there to be a thousand megawatts that show up the next day, but because of these huge effects that are happening hour by hour, you end up with 1200 megawatts, you can be exposed to, you know, hundreds of hundreds of dollars per megawatt hour of imbalance risk. And, you know, that can have a really significant effect on the energy market and, and finances. So, for us, we feel like getting our handle on this data and trying to f- build a forecast, at least a short-term forecast, is uh, is just really critical to manage our energy market risk. And I think it's sort of the kind, it's something that I, I presume a lot of my colleagues are, are doing as well. Um, so that's that's really the, the the use case in the short term and why I'm so focused on it. And then you know there's the medium and longer term demographic um, factors that I think are helping us plan for. You know what is the magnitude of the downturn? Nick Chassa is chief executive officer of East Bay Community Energy. Thanks for taking the time during what is a stressful period for all of us, but a uniquely stressful period for you. Thank you very much, Stephen, and thank you, Shale and uh, have a great day and stay safe. You too. Shale, we'll talk to you soon. I know where you'll be. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not going anywhere. (laughs) That's Shale Khan. He's my co-host and the managing director at Energy Impact Partners. I am Stephen Lacey, a contributing editor at GTM. Thank you so much for listening. You all stay safe out there. And uh, please think about your actions before you go out roaming the town. Think about the health of others. We will catch you next week as we follow this wild story of what's happening in energy markets and the economy. The Interchange is a weekly podcast on the global energy transformation. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.